An MD-11 crashes into the ocean near the Canadian shore. How did some wiring and unfortunate procedures cause an in-flight fire that incapacitated the plane while trying to perform an emergency landing in Canada? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And we are on episode nine. Today we are covering Swiss Air 111. Oh, that's what it was. I was looking at the episode worksheet online. And I was like, I can't figure out what this flight is. <laughs> so Swiss Air 111 is SR, which is not... I mean, it's not a horrible abbreviation, but it's not the most intuitive. Well, and I even no. want to look it up, because... I didn't want to know anything about the flight, so I was like, well, I'll, I guess I'll figure it out when we record tonight. And yep. Yeah. Yep. Swiss Air 111. This was a flight on September the 2nd of 1998 from JFK in New York to Geneva, Switzerland on an MD-11, which the MD-11 was first made in 1986. It is based on the DC-10. You all know how we like the DC-10. Except this wasn't as crappy as the DC-10. Yeah. It was a little more modern, a little more modern, but it had its own (laughs) problems. It was a little different. Well, and this was after the merger with McDonald, right? This is where Boeing, this is right after Boeing bought McDonnell Douglas. Oh, the incident. The incident. The the MD-11 was made 11 years before Boeing bought McDonnell Douglas. Okay. On this flight, the captain was Urs Zimmerman. He was 49. He had 10,800 hours total, of which 900 hours were on the type. He was a training pilot for Swiss Air. He was known to be easygoing in the cockpit, but also he was very precise with operations. So he was friendly, but professional. The first officer was Stephen Lowe, or Stephen Lowe. He was 36. He had 4,800 hours total, of which 230 hours were on the type. There were two pilots... 12 cabin crew, and 215 passengers on this flight. The flight took off at 8.18 p.m. from New York. The throttles were pushed forward together, as is customary with the Swiss. They usually do one hand each pilot and first officer on the throttles to push forward. And then what was found peculiar is that then the airplane didn't communicate for 15 minutes after takeoff. Isn't that against procedure? To some extent, yeah. There was no communications from the flight, which was found to be odd, but there really wasn't anything particularly off about that. Don't they have to, like, report what altitude they go to? To be fair, okay, they're in a busy airspace. New York is very, very busy. Basically, when you're in New York's airspace, you don't talk unless you've been talked to. Oh, okay, well, that makes sense. So, they didn't say anything, they didn't have any reason to. This airplane was equipped with the first... Uh, In-flight entertainment system in first class. That in-flight entertainment system included movies, internet browsing, and gambling. Thought that was interesting. That's for a way for the airline to get some money, I think. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, they were actually able to, like, gamble in first class. You could swipe a credit card, and on the little screen thing, you could gamble. The flight was scheduled for eight hours. At 9.10 p.m., 52 minutes after takeoff... They were flying at 35,000 feet, and suddenly the pilot noticed a strange smell in the cockpit. The co-pilot agreed. He noticed a strange smell. So they called a flight attendant to the cockpit, 
and they asked that flight attendant if they smelled anything back in the cabin. They noticed the smell in the cockpit, but they said they didn't notice any smells back in the passenger area. So at that point, they weren't too concerned. They suspected that it was probably the air conditioning system of the airplane. Apparently this was very common, and to be honest, probably still is. The first officer got out of his seat and inspected the air conditioning vent, the rear of the cockpit, and didn't notice anything. The air conditioning smoke is somewhat common and is the suspected issue, but be it that they didn't notice anything, they kept flying for three more minutes without noticing anything, and they had thought that the smoke had honestly dissipated. Fun fact about your nose. If you stay in one place for a long period of time, you stop smelling the smell. Nose blind. Yeah, because it's it's a survival thing. Yep. So they probably were like, it's fine, I can't smell it anymore. And then there's no more smoke, so we're good. Yeah, they probably couldn't really tell. At 9.13 p.m., so three minutes later, the pilots were discussing something off topic. But then they noticed that, the, that there was some smoke coming from the vents again. And there was a smell. At this point, they decided to land to get the plane checked. So they declared pan, 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 which is short for panic. It is just short of declaring an emergency. So it's not quite at the emergency level, but it basically tells air traffic control that there is something going on. At this point, they were talking to Montauk ACC, which is in Newfoundland in Canada. They declared the pan, pan, pan because of the smoke in the cockpit and requested to return to a convenient place. They suggested maybe Boston because the captain was very familiar with Boston. He'd flown in and out of there quite a few times. Swiss Air had mechanics there. It would be a good place to have the airplane checked out, and they were only a little bit past Boston. So, they thought it would be an easy place to return to to have the airplane looked at. ATC had agreed and began to give them vectors to turn around to go back to Boston, but then, almost immediately after, informed them that Halifax was closer, Halifax in Canada. It was only 66 nautica miles away, or 122 kilometers, as it was in the report. 66 nautical miles away, and so it would have been an easier divert for them to try to land in case something was critically wrong. After a moment, the flight crew agreed that they would go to Halifax instead because it was closer. So the airport immediately began to prepare for an emergency landing anyways, even though an emergency had not been declared. For a moment, the smoke was gone, but the pilots decided that the oxygen mask should be donned anyways by both of them, just to make sure that they were safe. Air traffic control informed them that they were 20 minutes away from the airport at this point, but they were lined up perfectly for a straight-in approach on runway 6. They confirmed that they would do runway 6, and then the air traffic control told them that it was 30 nautical miles to the threshold, so to the very end of the runway for touchdown, at which point the flight crew told them they need more than 30 nautical miles. Why? Because they were way too high. And didn't they have too much fuel? They did have too much fuel. But that wasn't known yet. They were All it was known is that they were way too high. At that point, they were at 25,000 feet, and they were told to descend to 3,000 and begin a loop so that they could make this runway. But they requested 8,000 feet instead so that they could do their uh, cabin preparations for landing as normal, which at that point was... Maybe a little concerning to air traffic control because that meant time. They weren't going to be as low as they wanted them to be. They were looping to descend when air traffic control requested the number of souls and fuel on board, as they do with most flights. 
when they declare an emergency or a pan. So, in other words, when this is happening, they request to know how much fuel they have and how many people are on board so that they know just in case. At that time, they never reported the number of souls on board, but they did report that they had 230 tons of fuel still on board and that they had to do a fuel dump. This was already far after they had requ- they had declared a pan. And so this was seen by the air traffic controller to be kind of odd because now that was going to take a lot more time. They were going to have to go somewhere else to dump. They should have been dumping almost right away. Air traffic control suggested that they dump over the airport or over the ocean after the pilots had requested to dump where they were. It wasn't exactly convenient because it was over land. They were instructed to go to make a left turn to go back out over a bay area so that they could dump fuel. At that point, a flight attendant was summoned to the cockpit because for the last few minutes, the flight crew had actually been going back and forth about needing charts for Halifax, which they had, but they were at the back of the cockpit, and neither one of them wanted to get up while they were in the middle of trying to deal with this situation. So he had a a flight attendant come to the cockpit and grab his flight bag containing the approach charts for Halifax and hand it to him. All this while they were making that that left turn and descending down to 10,000 feet as instructed by air traffic control for the dump. At 9.23 p.m., they started a smoke of unknown origin checklist. That is actually what it is called. Smoke or fume of unknown origin. And while they were going through this unknown origin checklist, they cut the unnecessary electrical power to the passenger cabin. The cabin bus switch was turned off, in other words. What wasn't known at that time was that that may have caused smoke to actually fill the cockpit more. So when the lights were shut off in the cabin, the cabin crew was still trying to clean up the airplane. So they all grabbed flashlights and they were assisting passengers as well as cleaning up the cabin using only flashlights. And there began to be more and more smoke in the cockpit, but not in the passenger cabin. Which is almost more of a problem, let's be honest. At 9.24, only a minute later, the autopilot disconnected. Suddenly. It was at that moment... Uncommandedly. Uncommandedly. It did it automatically and gave them a loud warning. Almost simultaneously, the flight crew noticed that there was a fire at the rear of the cockpit. Was it coming through the vents or was it just in the cockpit? It was coming from the ceiling. The ceiling? Yep. It was coming from the ceiling. At that point, they declared an emergency. However, that initial emergency call wasn't heard by the air traffic controller initially. It was only the second declaration of emergency, which was only moments later by the first officer. But it wasn't heard because the two flight crew were talking over one another. They were still six minutes from the airport at that point, but descending to dump fuel. A master warning was heard by the air traffic controller while they were communicating with them about this emergency, and they began to dump fuel where they were. At that point, they lost their primary flight displays or their instruments that tell them their attitude and everything, their electric instruments. Then they lost the transponder, and then they lost communications with ATC. So they couldn't be heard, and they couldn't be seen. They could only be seen that they were at all existing, basically, on the radar as a ping, but it didn't tell them altitude, didn't tell them speed, or anything. 
They just told him they were there. ATC felt very helpless at that point because they couldn't talk to them, and they couldn't tell much about the airplane. At that point, the airplane began to turn away from the course it was given and proceeded westbound along the coast. The flight crew was losing more and more of their systems in the cockpit, and the airplane was behaving pretty erratically. Only 30 seconds after declaring that emergency, the fire was raging very much so at the rear of the cockpit. The captain got up out of his seat and tried to extinguish the fire, and they requested to land immediately. But that said, there were six minutes after they lost communication with ATC before the airplane dropped off the radar into the ocean. And that's all they knew. The airplane just... Something was wrong. A fire was known to be in the cockpit. Smoke. They lost communication for six minutes. ATC had to sit and hopelessly hope that the airplane was going to make it to Halifax before it disappeared off radar. Where it was last seen on radar was nine kilometers from the Canadian shore in the middle of the night. Any questions at this point? No, I remember watching a thing on this, so I know what happened. <coughs> it had something to do with the entertainment system. Sort of. Uh, so I remember a little bit. I don't know why I know that, because it's not an air disaster episode, but I don't have a question because they lost all communication with the plane because of the electrical failure, so. So all said and done... When they did reach the crash site, they determined that nobody was, nobody had survived, and that meant there were 229 perished in this incident. The investigation was conducted by the Transportation Safety Board of Canada and assisted by 20 other agencies, including the NTSB and European agencies. It was the largest investigation in Canadian history and spanned four and a half years before its completion. The wreckage was reached first by local fishermen who quickly determined that there were no survivors. They were only finding parts of the plane, suitcases, and their contents. The wreckage spanned 20 kilometers, or 12 miles, along the Canadian shore, and only one body was found intact. Wreckage had to be recovered from the ocean for months, as there were over 2 million pieces recovered initially, though the black boxes were found within 9 days. 1 million more pieces were recovered a year later when a special vacuum ship from the Netherlands was brought in to basically vacuumed the ocean floor. This totaled to 98% of the wreckage being recovered. There were so many pieces because the plane experienced 350 Gs at impact. Okay, so now I have a question. Okay. okay. And this, again, I hate saying this, but I'm sure we'll get to this later. Did they have loss of flight control and that's why they hit the ocean? Or was it just they just didn't have any more control of the plane? So... It was not believed to be a loss of actual flight controls. It was a disorientation. They had lost so many of their other systems that they had lost their spatial awareness. They had no idea basically where they were, how high they were, how fast they were going. And or so, which direction they were or going. Or which direction they were going. Because the cockpit was filled with smoke and none of the systems were on. So ultimately they basically flew the airplane into the ocean without knowing it. Yeah, but even then... I don't know, that's a lot of G's for them to just fly it into the ocean. I mean, they were traveling fast. Well, yes, but... And when you hit the ocean, it acts as an incompressible fluid, so it's like hitting concrete. Yes, it's like when you belly flop, if you ever belly flopped. Yep. 
my my thought process is I don't know, maybe they tried to descend too fast or they thought they needed to descend more. I realized it was dark and they couldn't see the horizon, which probably didn't help. It didn't help at all. So one thing that they did determine, it was the captain was not in his seat at the time of impact. Oh, he must have been trying to fight the fighter. He was trying to fight the fire. They suspect he may have even been unconscious at the time of impact at the back Mm. of the cockpit because he had to take his mask off. Mm. So smoke inhalation. Yeah, there was at least six minutes they knew of. That he may not have been in his seat, and if the fire was raging, the smoke filled the cockpit completely. Mm. Okay. Well, I mean, that kind of answered my question, but go on. Sorry. From the CVR, they were able to determine that the pilots had smelled smoke first, found it, and the smoke then cleared, and then the smoke returned with flames. But that's basically all they were able to determine from the recording, as it was only half an hour long whereas planes today are required to be able to record the last two hours of flight. Also, the last six minutes of the flight were not recorded. It was initially thought to be because the black boxes weren't independently powered, and the pilots had, according to their checklist, cut power to the number three bus, which powered the boxes. However, it was determined that they actually went out when the fire reached the wiring for the boxes. Mm. Investigators knew from the air traffic control recordings that there was a fire, And that was verified in the wreckage. All of the fire damage was contained to the front part of the plane, namely the cockpit, first-class galley, and the first-class cabin. However, the many, many, many pieces made it difficult to determine the exact origin of the fire. So they decided to reconstruct that part of the plane. Basically, they took a skeleton of an airframe and fitted the wreckage to it like a giant 5,000-piece puzzle. This process was actually made a lot easier because the entire fire was put out at once when they hit the ocean. So the the image of the fire was captured, if you kind of catch my drift there. The roof of the galley had damage on top, but not on the inside, so, that they, so they knew that the fire had actually taken place in the attic section of the plane. The plane had an attic that spans the whole length of the plane, but was separated by a bulkhead, so business and economy class had no idea what was happening. Investigators definitively determined that the fire had started in the front part of the plane above the cockpit ceiling. Now that they knew the origin of the fire, the next step was to determine the cause. One of the first things that the investigators thought was kind of odd was a bunch of small metal pellets found in the seats and seat backs that resembled buckshot. Like from a shotgun. This event had occurred before 9-11 and before security was drastically tightened. So they thought maybe this was an act of terrorism? This idea was shot down, forgive the pun, when they realized that there was actually a shipment of ballpoint pen parts in the cargo area, and the pellets were the tips from the ballpoint pens that had shot into the cabin during impact. 350 Gs will do that. Yep. Well, now that that idea is gone, they looked to the more obvious potential source, and that was the 250 kilometers of wiring throughout the plane, and over 3,000 pieces were recovered from the crash site. The wiring in the MD-11 was labeled, and the first digit of the serial number on each piece indicated where in the plane that particular wire segment was from. So investigators looked specifically at any wires with the first digit B, as in boy, as that indicated it was near the cockpit. They looked specifically for any damage to the insulation or to the wires themselves, and they found 20 wire segments with balls of melted copper. Which means they weren't insulated? This is evidence of arcing. Arcing is a 
occurrence when a live wire is exposed to air, and so it sparks. And the heat from the spark actually melts some of the copper threading in the wire, forming little balls of copper. So they, like, they weren't insulated correctly. So they so weren't the, covered correctly. The insulation was compromised. Yes. That's how I'll put it. Um, how <laughs> old was this plane? The airplane was seven years old. Oh, that's not very old. It was built in 1991. So then there had to be an issue. They must have had to put something in about the covering of the wires then. That doesn't, that's not a very old airplane for that to have happened. No, but what had happened, so the 20 wire segments were found mostly in the cockpit ceiling, and eight of them were attached to the personal in-flight entertainment system um, in the seat backs of the plane. The investigators had to unbraid some of the wiring to find a second arc ball inside one of the segments, and when they put that into the whole configuration of the reconstruction, they found that that particular wire was rubbing on a metal bracket. So it had worn away at the insulation, exposing the wire, causing it to arc twice. So now that we know how and where the fire started, what kept it going? So what if it sparked? A spark has to catch something on fire for a fire to continue going. Something can spark and not cause a fire. So anything put in a plane made in the U.S., like the MD-11, has to pass a flammability test performed by the FAA. So what could have fed the fire? It had to pass a test, right? Amongst the wreckage was a lot of metallized mylar, or metallized polyethylene terephthalate, or MPET, which is used to blanket the insulation throughout the plane. We are not saying that word ever again. We're only going to use MPET. Yep. <laughs> it basically looks like foil, and much of the recovered bits of it were burned. There was so much of it that the investigators decided to just light it on fire, see what happened. And it went up like a match. So then why was it put in the... Why was it put so close to the wiring then? It was used to insulate it. I don't so know. if it's flammable and it's not supposed to be... So the FAA said 10 years prior to the incident that it passed a flammability test, that it wasn't flammable enough to cause concern lies well and if something goes up in flame fun fact it's flammable <laughs> and it doesn't pass the test well and it was also installed in almost 700 planes dude okay listen how do they how do they test this stuff then like I'm okay so some of the reasons it may have passed the tests were that the faa was concentrating its fire prevention efforts on the cabin interior materials and specific fire fire zones as well as quote a lower priority assigned to fire threats in other areas. The non-fire zone hidden areas were viewed as benign from a fire hazard perspective, as they were seen to be free from the combination of the two elements needed for a fire, a potential ignition source and flammable materials. So basically, they didn't care because it was in the ceiling. L okay, listen though, okay? <laughs> you have wiring. Wiring can, be, can cause sparks. And given it's supposed to have insulation um, around the actual wire, right? But in this case, it got worn away. And then you have something incredibly flammable. Around it. Around it. So both of those are not true. Not true. Yeah. They were considering it out of sight, out of mind. That is dumb and dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> 
A little history dig found that this wasn't the first incident where the MPET had caught fire. Several incidents had occurred on the ground, and these had led McDonnell Douglas to be concerned and voice that concern. But the FAA did not ban the substance, even though their own testing at that point showed that the material could ignite and burn. Oh, okay. So you're telling me this isn't the first time that's happened? No. But all the other times it happened on the ground. Okay, if it can happen on the ground, it can happen in the air. I know. Uh, Okay, and then (laughs) why didn't McDonnell Douglas do something about it without having to go through the FAA? I mean, I I realize that the FAA has to certify stuff, but... Why didn't they just take it out if they knew it was going to be an issue? The so reasons. The FAA did a follow-up, and they did not mandate action to mitigate the threat of the potential fire. McDonnell Douglas did issue a service bulletin to replace the MPET, and they stopped using it in their planes going forward. But neither the FAA nor any other airworthiness authorities required its removal until after this incident. Right. So McDonnell Douglas couldn't really do anything, because they didn't have the power to say, everyone take it out of your planes. Yeah, but they put out a service bulletin. I feel like... Which a service bulletin, though, doesn't have the priority that an airworthiness directive does. Well, an airworthiness given, directive, yeah. An airworthiness directive tells you, do it, and do it by X amount of time. Otherwise, this plane won't be allowed to fly. Right. A service bulletin is like, hey, we noticed something. You should probably do something about it. Yeah, but then you put it up to the airlines, and the airlines aren't going to do anything about it, because as we talked about before, the plane is on the ground, it's not making money. Well, so... no, and there's a few other reasons, too. One, that was what was covering the acoustic insulation for the entire airplane. So in other words, it was through every wall, every ceiling, every floor of that airplane. So they would have had to have ripped every panel off of that airplane to take out the Mylar. The MPET. So it was a big undertaking. For one, and two, the other problem they have is that the airplane was certified with it. In order to remove it, they have to have it recertified. They have to get what is known as an STC, a supplemental type certification. So in other words, they had to get it basically recertified. As with, an airplane? With a different material, yes. Okay, here's my entire problem with that. Okay, so they found, the FAA found that this substance can be flammable and that there has been instances where planes are on the ground and this has caught fire. Given that's not as big of a deal as it is in the air, however, that does mean that it can happen in the air, which it did, and people died. So my thing is, is okay, we realize this is now flammable, this is probably unsafe. We need to go back to McDonnell Douglas and have them recertify this airplane. Like, well, it, the it FAA doesn't lose money on that for doing that. No, but they would get pushback from all of the airlines. So it was probably politically based. I'm sure it for was. For one, and two, I mean, the FAA, if the FAA makes no decision on it, the airlines just aren't going to follow. I mean, if the FAA and any other governing body, if it's only the manufacturer that's like, hey... Maybe you should look at doing something about this because we noticed a problem. The airlines aren't going to do anything because it's going to cost them way too much money. That's just how it is. It's going to cost them too much money, and if the FAA doesn't say it's a problem, then they don't believe that it's as big of a problem as it is. Well, and my problem is the FAA didn't say anything about it. Right. Also, I would like to mention it is not just the FAA. It was all other airworthiness authorities throughout the world. Right. Exactly. Yes, but the McDonnell Douglas 111, right? 
11. 11. Sorry. MD-11 is an American-made plane. Yes, but it does have to be authorized by all other airworthiness authorities before it can fly in their country. Yes, true, but I have a, f- I have a sneaky um, suspicion that it has to go through the FAA first before it gets through the others. Maybe that's not right, but... Not generally, but the FAA is usually the lead on anything built in their country, <laughs> in the U.S., because... The airplane being based there is most likely going to be flown there most often. Yeah. And the only time where that's not necessarily the case is where the country receiving the very first of the type is involved. So, say, the the very first MD-11 to be built was delivered to Finnair. um, And actually, it was delivered to somebody else. Anyways, in Finland... If it was delivered to Finnair in Finland, then the governing body, the governing body for the European Union, would get involved at the same time Did for the certification. Did you just know that off the top of your head? Yes. Okay. That's why I'm nerdy about these things. It's like you with numbers. Yeah, but it's like random numbers. That was oddly specific. <laughs> I I don't know. My point being is they found, even after, you know, this airplane was certified, right? Mm-hmm. They found that this is a potential substance that can catch fire. It's in the walls with, of the cabin, of the fuselage, mm-hmm. which I feel like is even more dangerous than if it were to have been in the interior. Because the interior, you can put out a fire. Right. But you can't do it when it's in between the interior and exterior of the plane. Well, some parts of the plane you potentially could. But this is a good segue to my next point. Cool. The MD-11 was not required to have built-in fire detection or suppression features in certain hidden areas. I.e. above the cockpit. Or to have access panels to get to these areas to allow... above the cockpit. (laughs) To allow for alternative methods for firefighting. So even if the crew was aware of where the fire was, they couldn't have done anything about it. And to become aware of it, they were supposed to either smell it or see it. There was no actual system saying, hey, there's a fire here. Quite literally, in their manuals, it tells them that they're supposed to be able to differentiate between a smell from smoke from an air conditioning system to an electrical smoke to a hydraulic smoke to... Yeah, they're supposed to be able to differentiate these things by smell and sight. Where it is and what it smells like. And so they couldn't differentiate the smell and they thought it was an air conditioning Fire. That's air so smoke, stupid. Not a fire. That is so stupid. It is so stupid. I realize different smokes have different smells, but like, if you've never smelt it before, it smells like smoke. Right. So how how in the world are you supposed to know? By the way, it's very hard for me to not cuss right now. Like, I just want everyone <laughs> to know. I'm trying so hard. I'm just like, this is so stupid. Not only is that dangerous, right? And, I mean, I kind of understand if this was never a problem before, that they don't put anything that says there's a fire there. Fine. You figure out there's a fire with smoke coming in the cockpit. However, them trying to figure out where the smoke is coming from is going to take too much time away from the pilots for them to be able to land the plane safely and without it crashing. And they couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't put out the fire because there was no way to reach the fire. Don't they have an axe, though? 
Did that come after this? They probably didn't. So they had no way to reach the actual fire. Nope. They just knew the general area it was in. Right. So, and even if you were to try to put it out, that's not where the fire started. It it right. started farther back. So there would have been no way of them to put it out completely. And they're lucky it didn't go farther than where it did. Because the entire plane is lined with this ridiculously flammable substance. Well, turns out they weren't so lucky anyways. Oh, okay. It was actually in the worst place possible. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, go on. <laughs> so, my last little bit. Um, investigators briefly looked at if there was anything the pilots could have done differently to avert the crash. Yes, there was a fire. They couldn't avoid a fire. Whatever. But could they have done something so that they didn't crash? They followed their checklists to a T, cutting power to the cabin as listed in the checklist. They questioned whether or not they should have detoured to dump fuel, and if that added time would have made a difference and given them time to get to the airport. But ultimately, it was determined that this was not a factor in the crash because they needed 13 minutes to get to Halifax before the diversion, and they crashed in 10. So even if they hadn't diverted, they still would have crashed. Yes, they probably would have been closer to the ground, probably hurting more people. Because they crashed in the ocean. Yeah, they could have crashed over land. Yeah. That would have been way more catastrophic. Well, either way, it would have been catastrophic, but they could have killed people on the ground. Yep. And this way that didn't happen, I hate to say, it's a little morbid to think, you know, people still Mm -hmm. died, but extra people outside of the aircraft were not affected. Mm Mm-hmm. And that may have been more of a stroke of luck than anything, actually. Because they just didn't know where they were. They didn't know where they were. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Okay. In this report, which was 352 pages long. Yes, we are just going to complain about the length of really long reports every (laughs) single time. And the only reason I complain about that, honestly, is because there's a a lot of information that is mostly useless when it comes to something like this. Like, If you really just want to know what happened, how it happened, why it happened, there's a lot of useless stuff. That said... This report had 55 findings. 55 findings is more than I've had on any report so far. And our episode on the Air China flight was 700 and something pages? Yes. Yes. So this one had more findings than any of the others. They were also very long. So every single one of the findings was like several paragraphs. And I had to break down those findings as best as I could without giving you all 55. I broke them down into, I don't even know how many, many, but not as many. So all of those findings and also the recommendations section on this report was enormous. I mean, it's each section is paragraphs and paragraphs about what each business area and organization did i.e. the FAA, the NTSB, Boeing, Swiss Air, all those things. It was broken down in like 60-something pages. Usually it's basically bullet points. Yeah, they're basically bullet points. The findings was the only thing that even was really bullet pointed, and again, each one was still like paragraphs long, but it still had like one through whatever. 
and broken down in three separate sections. Let me wrap it up for you. Uh, they had a flammable substance. <laughs> they had a conductor, <laughs> and it caught fire, and they didn't have a way of suppressing it. So they lost all their electrical systems to the cockpit, and eventually it just crashed. Pretty much. So <laughs> <laughs> let's go. Just a fix more all in depth. those things. <laughs> but we will get a little more in depth and specific about this because it was so critical. I mean, the Canadians really did. They had so many organizations involved. They had the French involved, the Swiss involved, the U.S. involved. Obviously, Canada themselves, the Dutch. They had. So many organizations involved, navies, and, it, you know, all of that said and done, four and a half years later, they finally issued this report because they had to analyze everything to figure out, since there was no recorded data on this, what really happened. And they had to do everything possible to figure it out. They literally dug the whole airplane out of the ocean in millions and millions of pieces. With a vacuum. They had volunteers from all those different countries, from different organizations, locals, so on and so forth, that literally spent days, weeks, months just cataloging parts. They had a massive warehouse set up where they had all the parts gathered and they just put them into boxes. They filled a whole massive hangar warehouse with these parts from this airplane. That said, findings. They found that... The aircraft certified standards for the material flammability were inadequate. Hey, hey, that was literally number one. No, really. That was the number one finding. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> they found that that led to the propagation of the fire, the rear right of the cockpit in the ceiling near the rear wall, and it helped to and it helped to intensify the fire. Not only did it intensify the fire, but it also degraded the aircraft systems and the cockpit environment very quickly, and ultimately led to the loss of the control of the aircraft. The MPET-type cover materials on thermal acoustic insulation blankets used on the aircraft was flammable and likely started and propagated the fire. <laughs> Just the fire most likely started from a wire arcing event in the entertainment system wiring above the cockpit, from a cable with a worn insulation. They found that the fuses in the airplane were similar to general aircraft use fuses and were not suitable for preventing this type of arcing event. So in other words, the fuses that were used on this airplane, particularly in that area and on the entertainment system, were general use aircraft fuses and were not correctly rated to prevent an arc of that type, of that magnitude. There was no built-in fire or smoke detection and suppression systems or devices in the area of the fire and were not required, which delayed the reaction of determining that, the, that there was a fire and tracing it to try to prevent it or make decisions about emergency landings. It was found that there was a reliance on sight and smell to detect a fire and where the fire may be coming from, which led the crew to make an incorrect assumption that the smoke was from the air conditioning. Stew, pid. Just reiterating from earlier. That's so stupid. Mm -hmm. They found that there was no in-flight firefighting procedure in place to aggressively determine the source and expedite emergency procedures, and it was not required either. They found that the loss of the primary flight displays caused the crew to have to use backup analog instruments but lo the location of those instruments made it difficult to transition to their use, 
which likely caused the spatial disorientation of the crew and perhaps ultimately the crash. They found that the design of the aircraft does not allow easy access to the location that may contain the fire, making the reliance on crew to detect and suppress the fires manually difficult and delayed. I feel like Marana's going to explode. Yeah, kind of. Just slightly. I have, like, steam coming out of my ears right now. I know. So. They found that the power was lost to most cockpit systems in the last minutes, inhibiting the crew's ability to properly fly and navigate the airplane, and they could not communicate with the air traffic control. They found that there was no requirement to immediately shut down all non-essential electronics to isolate ignition sources. It was only part of the checklist further down. So, in other words... They could have shut off all of those powers quicker, and it may have kept the fire from continuing, but we may never know. Yeah, but if the blanket was already on fire, how would that have helped? Because it may have been arcing over and over again, lighting oh. more and more on fire. I guess it would have it kept it. I guess if that was the case, it would have kept it from spreading as fast but it still would have spread if the thing was on fire you know already that said they still believe that it may have cutting the power turning off the the blower fans the air conditioning system in the airplane may have actually caused the smoke to get worse in the cockpit because it didn't pull it rearward there's no circulation right there's no circulation okay they found that checklists for the smoke scenarios could take 20 to 30 minutes to complete in some aircraft like the MD-11 and could further cause fires as they do not allow time enough for shutting down overheating equipment. So in other words, as they're shutting certain things down, then you stop the circulation, you stop fans, and things begin to overheat. You could cause other fires in the amount of time it takes to do these checklists. The smoke and fumes of unknown origin checklists from both the manufacturer and the operator did not require cabin emergency lights to be turned on before the cabin bus was turned off. So in other words, it didn't require them to turn on the floor lights in the cabin. So if they were to have landed, let's say they had enough time, right, mm -hmm. and they landed, mm -hmm. they wouldn't have been able to see exits. Nope. And it gets better still. The light selection, the emergency light selection for the cabin was also available at the main cabin crew's station, but was not selected there either. The cabin crew instead used their own flashlights to secure the cabin, which could have delayed the arrival, but did not ultimately affect this flight or this accident. So in other words, it took them probably more time to clear the cabin and prepare for an emergency landing because they were using flashlights rather than the cabin's emergency lights which would have given them better lighting and more hole lighting. But ultimately, the airplane was doomed no matter what. It didn't delay them any more than they already were. No, but that's still incredibly dangerous. Yes. I mean, if you think about it, if they were to have landed at Halifax and they didn't have any emergency lights on and they had to get passengers out and it was dark, yep, that's incredibly dangerous. And then how would the flight crew be able to get out? I mean, the pilots have the little... Emergency hatch. Yeah, they have the rope to get out. And I mean, it mostly affected <laughs> them, right? It didn't right. really affect passengers, but still, you know, that's incredibly dangerous. Who knows what would have happened if, when the plane was not in the air anymore, the fire could have gone to other places. I don't know. I just feel like that's incredibly dangerous that they didn't do that, even though it didn't affect the crash at all. Right. 
they should have at least used the emergency lights. Right. Also, neither of the Swiss Air or Boeing checklists for this emergency situation called for the immediate preparation for landing at the beginning of the checklist, with the emphasis to land immediately, which delayed the descent and the approach to the airport. Basically, because there wasn't an emphasis on making this an emergency and landing as soon as possible, they didn't determine which airport they wanted to land at for a while. They didn't begin their descent for a while. They weren't rushed into this descent. And ultimately, there was only a call to prepare for a landing at, toward the very, very end of the checklist, which could have been 20 to 30 minutes later, which they didn't have. So ultimately, if they had de decided when they smelled the smoke, right, if they had decided to land then, they could have landed the plane and gotten everybody off. It was determined that if it had been at the very top of the checklist and they had acted immediately upon noticing the smell of smoke in the cockpit to begin their descent, that they could have made a straight in for Halifax and landed. Ah, okay. They found that, the, that upon examining other MD-11 aircraft, they noted wiring discrepancies, or that's how they wrote it in the report, or damage, that had... Discrepancies? Yeah, they wrote discrepancies. Wire discrepancies. So, in other words, damage to wires that had the potential for wire arcing, similar to that of the accident airplane, and also found it in other aircraft types by other agencies. Lovely. Yep. So what kind of insulation are they using? So there's quite a few other types, it turns out, but a lot of the bigger airplanes were starting to use this Mylar for a while. Well, not that, but the stuff covering the... the... Stuff, you're talking about the insulation around the wire? Yeah. Like, I mean, if it's rubbing against a metal bracket over and over and over, I kind of get how that would mm -hmm. happen. But even so, make it thicker? I don't know. If, if that's... I mean, that increases weight, that increases size, and it becomes difficult. Yes, understandably so. But However, people can die. Yeah. Right. Well, ultimately, that is something that has changed. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Yes. Other wire arc events were noted on the accident aircraft, but did not show signs of igniting a fire, and were not in the ignition source area. They found that aluminum caps on the oxygen lines above the cockpit were susceptible to leaking and failure, which could have led to a fire or contamination of flight crew's oxygen supply. It was unknown if this occurred in this flight. Okay, You're so looking at me like shocked. <laughs> It's only because we went and saw Mayday a couple weeks ago. Was it a couple weeks ago already? Midway. Midway. Yes. Mayday. Why did I say Mayday? Midway. And the guy, one of the main characters, inhales bad oxygen. Caustic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, caustic oxygen. And he can't fly for the rest of his life because it tore up his lungs. Right. And... I'm sure, I'm hoping that this wouldn't have happened to that degree, but that's incredibly dangerous for the flight crew. Yeah. Like, incredibly dangerous. Like, yeah. you can get diseases from that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, and on top of that, I mean, it, it just, it could have spread the fire a lot further because there's oxygen fueling yeah. a fire. And, I mean, it could have caused, yeah, a lot of fumes to leak into their their oxygen system and ultimately they basically would have been useless. So, they they have no idea if this is actually going to happen on this flight or not, though. Well, I mean, you know, it it wasn't a, f a factor, but it's kind of scary they found that out. 
They found that the CBR recording time was not sufficient enough to make determinations about earlier in the flight, which may have been crucial in the investigation. So that's where the CVR only recording 30 minutes instead of 2 hours was crucial. They found that the CVR and the FDR had separate power sources, but both were powered by the same main bus, as permitted by regulations. But they were both disabled by the fire damage at nearly the same time. Independent power sources may have allowed for more data to be captured by the CVR and the FDR, but it's unknown. The CVR and the FDR water beacons were not required to have the same level of protection as other recording equipment on the airplane. Found that interesting. So they found them. Yeah. They found them within nine days, mostly because the airplane wasn't in that deep of water, luckily, and they knew where the whole thing was. But it still wasn't required to have the level of protection for the water beacons, so it may have been more difficult to find them if it had ended up in deeper waters. Because the beacons wouldn't have worked? Because the beacons wouldn't have been as well protected. Well, So more than so... likely, yeah, they may not have worked. Oh, well, that's good, because, you know, that's important mm -hmm. information. <laughs> mm -hmm. The In-Flight Entertainment Network Supplemental Type Certification, or the IFEN STC, two different things, Project Management Structure, so this, the management that basically developed, designed, installed the In-Flight Entertainment System in the airplane, did not ensure that the In-Flight Entertainment Network was designed and installed with proper emergency electrical load shedding procedures to match those of standard MD-11 systems. So in other words, the electrical equipment for the in-flight entertainment system was more rudimentary than normal electrical systems on the MD-11, which had emergency systems in place to prevent heavy loads and high, high voltage arcs, basically, that the in-flight entertainment network was putting out. So, it was creating large arcs and lighting fires because the power supply was much higher on that system than most other MD-11 one, one, uh, systems, and they were not protected the same way, the way they were designed. The FAA's STC approval process did not assess that properly trained employees were used on the integration of the in-flight entertainment systems with the MD-11 power supply requirements, and they found that the employees did not have enough aircraft-specific knowledge, so they weren't as knowledgeable about the MD-11 and their electric systems as some others. They found that the FAA allowed de facto, and that's in the report, the FAA allowed de facto delegation of portions of the aircraft evaluation group to the designated alteration station, or the contractor that was hired to do the in-flight entertainment network installation, even though there was no provision for them to do so in the STC process. So, that's a lot of wording that's really confusing. Basically, the FAA told that contractor, you are allowed to certify the in-flight entertainment network parts of it on your own. We don't want to have any hand in it. We have too much other stuff to do. It was a secondary system. It wasn't a flight critical system. They were like, you do the alteration. You sign off on most of it. We'll come in and do the final cert. And you're good to go. They gave that to the contractor that did the installation of the in-flight entertainment system. But isn't that the system that started the arcing? Yep. There needs to so... be a separation of responsibility. You can't certify your own system. Right. Yeah. Because you don't know. Right. You know? And eventually that caused 
a catastrophic fire. I mean, that did affect flight systems. Now, it may not have been directly directly a flight <laughs> system in and of itself that was important, but it ended up affecting the instruments in the cockpit. Right. So, yeah, you gotta, you can't just be like, uh, yeah, uh, you know what, uh, you, you install it and, uh, tell us it's good, we're gonna come in, make sure it's good, and it's good. Like, no. <laughs> at least have another contractor look at it if the FAA is not willing to look at it themselves. Right. If they're too busy. Have another contractor or someone, you know, Boeing, They need to have a something. third, yeah, somebody else who's not the installation company do the... The audit on it, basically. Yeah. They found that the approach charts for the Hal- for Halifax were not kept next to the pilot, but instead at the aircraft's library, at the observer station, at the rear of the cockpit. And this took time and attention from the flight crew during critical stages of handling the situation. The Royal Canadian Mounted Police did not find any evidence of any explosives or incendiary device and did not find any criminal acts involved with the crash. Pretty straightforward, but... You know, be it there were ballpoint pen pieces everywhere. That's just something you wouldn't think about. Like, <laughs> oh, these kinda, are going to become bullets. It was kind of a weird little thing. They found that the air conditioning anomalies were considered by all parts of the industry, manufacturer, certification, organizations, airlines, all alike, to be insignificant and no immediate threat to safety of the aircraft and did not require immediate landing, which is part of basically the philosophy that, you know, an air conditioning smoke and a smell, you know, they, they start to do something about it, but it's really not an immediate concern, which is what they thought was going on for probably half of their dealing with the situation all the way up to the point of impact. They thought it was just an air conditioning smoke and fire, and so that's what they were trying to deal with. And because it was relatively common to have smoke come from the air conditioning systems, it never really affected any flights critically, so they didn't consider it to be a big problem. They found that actions of the flight crew to prepare the cabin for landing and dump fuel were consistent with the crew being unaware of a full-fledged fire that was spreading in the cockpit. But, okay, so my assumption is that air conditioning fires were common? Not fires, but smoke. So, but then if it doesn't do what you expect it to, shouldn't you just go into emergency mode? I mean, I feel like... It dissipated, it went away, or they thought it did. When it came back, they should have been like, uh, I don't know. Like, well, and they kind of did. I mean, they when it started to come back, that's when they declared pan, but they still didn't think much of it because it was just smoke. There was just a little bit of smoke and a smell. Not uncommon still. It wasn't until there was a fire, they realized something was very wrong. Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like even it if it was... It shouldn't get to that point. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and that's the philosophy thing is, you know, they got so used to that and that was such a common thing in airlines that they, any other situation happening just didn't seem to warrant their attention at that level. So, as you'll find out in the recommendations later, they did change that where now it is critical that in all smoke situations, if there's any smoke in the cockpit, the first thing is to prepare for an emergency landing. I just feel like, first of all, it's horrible that the air conditioning system would smoke to begin with. <laughs> That's slightly concerning. But in any case of, I don't know, I feel like I would be like, okay, eh, there's smoke. Something's probably on fire. Like, there's very little cases of smoke that 
don't have a fire. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So my <laughs> my overall thing is like, what was happening to those air conditioning systems that they didn't think it was a critical issue to land, you know? I, right. Eh, nah. Right. Yeah. They should have declared when they found when the smoke came back and, you know, it didn't like go away, go away, it came back and it got worse. They should mm -hmm. have been like, okay, this is an emergency situation. We need to land immediately. Well, and ultimately they should have done that as soon as they noticed a smell. As soon as they noticed yeah. the smell of smoke, they should have began preparing for an emergency landing. But they didn't. And that was part of the, I mean, that was part of the procedures and the philosophy and such. It really wasn't anywhere that they should. And so now, now it is. They found that the interactions between the flight crew and the air traffic control did not affect the outcome of the accident. This is kind of interesting to me because I've watched a few different interviews with one particular air traffic controller who was the last one who had contact with them and was helping through them through most of the emergency. He was one of only two air traffic controllers that was working that night on that center. And uh, he was trying very hard to help them with their emergency. And when he lost control of them, I mean, he felt horrible. I mean, he, you know, he, he thought, was there anything I could have done that could have helped them get to Halifax sooner? Well, even the report says no. All the investigations said no. And it's something that I'm sure to this day he's still trying to live with. But in all of the... The interviews I saw him in, you know, he's still, he was still obviously relatively broken up about it. You know, he just, he knows there's nothing he could have done, but he just. But it's still traumatic. Thinks about it over and over and over again. Is there anything I could have done to save these people? Did I do something wrong? Again, kudos to ATC for having the job that we would never want to do. Yeah. That's stressful when you have a flight like that and it's found that there's nothing you can do to help them. Mm -hmm. and you're the one who's in constant contact with them, that's rough. It is. I bet, like, you know, he probably had some PTSD. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. After that. And, and that's why air traffic controllers have really high suicide rates. It's because they have to deal with stuff like that. Yeah. And I don't think I could. No. I've really debated if we should add the little air traffic control recording in from this episode, because it's not that bad. It's It's only everything leading up to the point where it cut off. Because it's six minutes before the airplane ever had an impact, there's nothing really, like, I mean, that sad about it. It's just really hearing the back and forth about the emergency and how kind of quickly that spread. Yes. Again, if you're an ATC person, contact us, email us, post on our Facebook page. We'll give you major kudos, because that's a rough job. I would yeah, not want that job. Right. Only three more findings. I promise. We're almost through this. There's so many. They found that the first officer's seat was occupied at the time of impact, but they could not determine if the captain's seat was occupied. It was most likely not. Now for the one I've been waiting for most of all, because this is the weird little tidbit that had absolutely no outcome on this accident at all, but it was a little thing just hidden in this report that I thought was really interesting. They found that less than a minute before impact, one of the pilots shut down the number two engine during the final stages of flight. It was not confirmed the reason for this, but it was believed that it may have been due to fire damage from one of the cables, which was confirmed. They did find fire damage on one of the cables leading to that engine, which would have illuminated a fire handle for the engine, telling them that there was an engine fire. 
and it would have given them a light, nice loud fire warning on the engine. So they may have disabled it, truly thinking there might have been an engine fire. It's just instinct. When you hear that fire, you pull the fire suppression system and shut down the engine. And that is what they did. Now, why that's interesting is because most likely that was the co-pilot that did it, be it that he was still in his seat. And be it that it was less than a minute before impact... That means he was alive. That means he was still conscious at that point, which they weren't sure, but that was the only indication they had that he was likely still conscious, at least at that point before impact. Yeah, well, and would they have passed out due to G's? No, but due to smoke inhalation, smoke maybe. But if he still had his oxygen mask on... But if it had been broken, if there's, if the oxygen system had been contaminated with smoke... I mean, the flames could have already engulfed the whole cockpit by then, too. They don't know. Interesting. That would suck, though. Mm-hmm. To still be conscious and then end up not meaning to, but crashing yourself into the ocean. Right. It's kind of like the UPS flight, mm-hmm. where he got so close to landing, yep. and then he crashed. Yep. That was sad. Maybe we'll cover that sometime. We will cover that sometime. Yeah, that's... That one's not officially commercial, but... It's not commercial, but they did understand things. <laughs> it did change how aviation was, so... Right. Yeah, that that one sucked. Anyway, yep. sorry, go it's ahead. It's okay. My final finding is that they found there was no smoke reported in the passenger cabin before the CVR cut out, and there was no soot or fire damage noted in the actual passenger cabin itself... From the crash recovery, meaning that it likely didn't spread to the cabin, passenger cabin, and they may have never known. I mean, they knew there was smoke, they knew something was up, but they may have never known that it was a truly raging fire. And well, because it was in the ceiling and they didn't have a way to look at it. Right. On to the recommendations. I have summed these up into fewer. The CTSB, the Canadian Transportation Safety Board, recommended that procedures for the smoke from unknown origins be redone, so the the checklist be redone, and that was a really big, obviously critical thing. Number one, be prepare for an emergency landing. Number two, be what systems are cut and when, and reduce that checklist so it wouldn't take so long. Fire suppression systems and detection systems were added to a lot more critical areas, including avionics, wiring systems and aircraft wiring system locations. They were also just added throughout the airplanes period so that they could find fires a lot easier and uh, reduce their risks. They did recommend the ban on metallized mylar, or MPET, which was done in Western countries. However... It was not done in some Eastern countries right away, and it may not have been done even today. Uh, Russia may still be using it in some of their airplanes. Well... If they catch on fire, yep, and no one knows where it came Don't from. Don't say we didn't warn you. I think I know where it came from. Right. They recommended that they change the way the materials are certified <laughs> as too flammable. So, obviously, there needed to be some big changes to certifying materials for aircraft use as being non-flammable or of low flammability and such. So... Those procedures were changed. There was a complete overhaul to the system done by the FAA as well as manufacturers alike uh, as to how they certify that. Because if you can light it on fire, it's flammable. Yeah. Fun fact. <laughs> Turns out. Fun fact. If it actually goes up in flame, it's flammable. Well, and where and how that use changed a lot. They recommended that cockpit voice recorder 
recordings should last at least two hours, which was mandatory in the U.S. as of 2008, as well as just about everywhere. They recommended that an inspection of all MD-11 wires be done to determine any discrepancies and repair that they repair the cables that could potentially arc, change the areas where wires typically are damaged, and repair and modify the brackets that har- hold the harnesses. Yeah, I guess for differentiating from what I said before, they might not have to change the entirety of the insulation, but just the insulation that had to go around the brackets. Well, yeah, and I mean, if they change the brackets so that they don't wear on the, the wire, harnesses as yeah. much. Well, maybe the wire should be moved so they're not rubbing on anything. Right. Yes, well, I I think... Or they rub against a an insulated bracket. Yes. So they don't arc. I'm trying to visualize that. I, I have a feeling that I've seen this in a documentary. I don't know. I, I remember watching a documentary on this, but it was quite a long time ago. I can't remember which one I watched. But if I'm picturing this right, the brackets are holding the wires in place. So it doesn't surprise me they were rubbing, but it does surprise me that they didn't do anything about it wearing on it. So having insulated brackets makes sense. Yeah. They recommended to the FAA as well as Boeing that they issue an AD or an airworthiness directive for the aircraft type to check all wires in the cockpit area for damage and repair and replace the areas that have damaged wires. They recommended that the CVR and the FDR have independent power sources and multiple power sources. They recommended that the MPET be removed from all aircraft. <clears throat> no duh. They recommended changes to the map lights and wiring of the map lights to prevent other wire damage and arc events, because it was found that a lot of the other 20 little beads were on the map lights for the, for the cockpit as well. So there's just the little lights overhead of the pilots that help them see literally maps and things on their lap and such. Those lights were found to have a lot of wear on their wires and had a lot of arcs. They mostly got lucky. They recommended that they update standard procedures for in-flight firefighting to include easier access to areas that are critical and include fire and smoke detection and suppression equipment in critical areas, like avionics wiring. Uh, If it can reach the cockpit instruments... Mm-hmm. should probably have a system in place just in case those wires catch fire. Yep. The FAA reacted to this by requiring all airlines to strip MPET from air- the aircrafts within four years. So all aircrafts are now free of it. But it did take four years because it was in literally every nook and cranny. Right. It did take a very, very long time to get it out. And the FAA put programs in place to train and show the importance of aircraft wiring wear to mechanics and aircraft manufacturers and anybody involved with basically airline aircraft and transport aircraft alike, as well as even general mechanics. Swiss Air reacted very, very quickly, actually, to almost everything. They reacted before there were even recommendations really made. Swiss Air removed their in-flight entertainment systems immediately after the accident, as soon as it was determined that that may have been even remotely a cause. They removed all of their entertainment systems from the MD-11s. They also immediately removed all MPET from their MD-11s. 
They did change their checklists and updated them, but it surprised everybody in 2001, only a couple years later, when Swissair suddenly went bankrupt. Their operations were then transferred to Corsair, which became Swiss International Airlines as it is today. They were known as, they are known as just Swiss to most people, just as big Swiss across the side of the airplane, big white airplanes with a Swiss flag on the tail. They are, and as Swiss Air was, a flag carrier. Flag carriers, we don't have one in the U.S., but flag carriers are quite literally the national airline of a country. So they are run and subsidized by the, the government. They're helped in every aspect by the government. They basically are a government entity. In the U.S., we have none. It's totally free market. That's basically everything I have. That's which it? Is, which is still a lot. Yeah, that's yeah, it. a lot. This one was a hefty, hefty incident. There's a lot more recommendations that are very, very specific, but those were the key critical ones. Those were most of the findings broken down. And this incident was really a hefty one. It changed a lot of things in the industry. It helped the industry along with a lot of things, but also, I mean, it was it was a big toll. I mean, Canadians saw it as a a big thing. So that was Swiss Air 111? Yep. We hope you have a great rest of your week. Remember to tell your friends. And especially on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating so we can get higher up there so people can listen. Yep. And share, 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 share. Whether it be in person or on social media, we are always looking to get more people involved. Soon we have a lot more things coming. We've almost reached 200 listens on our first episode as of December 1st. We're getting there. Yay. I mean, that's pretty good. I mean, we have people listening regularly now. I mean, on Tuesdays, before we even wake up, there's like already a dozen people have listened to the episode, which is pretty good. That's probably most of our European listeners. Yeah, probably. As people who are actually awake. We will have a Christmas Day special episode. Shout out, because next week will be Christmas Eve. So. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. We're way in advance right yeah, now. Yeah, we always record in, like a couple weeks in advance. So so next week's next episode week. is on Christmas Eve, and we'll have a special Christmas flight. Yep. And then we have lots of stuff coming in the new year. Next year, um, just so you guys don't suggest things we're already going to be covering, we will be covering the series of 737 rudder incidents. We will be covering Tenerife around its anniversary. And we will also be covering the Concorde crash. Yep. So, if you're thinking about telling us, hey, you should do that, um, it's already we on know. our schedule. <laughs> yeah, it's already on our schedule. <laughs> we have some a nice big list already made up. And we have been taking recommendations from you guys. We have we have at least one more lined up. Yes. One, one, of them, one of them is the oh, yeah, we have Yeah, we have two more lined up. That's right. And we then, have at least two more lined up already. And then we got an email to do a TWA flight. I don't remember what it is off the top of my head. Yep. And also next year... We are doing a collaboration episode with our good friends at Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Look them up. They are a true crime, paranormal, conspiracy, etc. podcast. They're on all the same services we are, I think. Yes, they are. So yep. look them up. We will be doing a crash with them. I don't yep. know. Which we one haven't yet. determined which one yet. Yep, we so. have an I we have a couple of ideas. But we'll be doing that and then we have a Patreon coming. Yeah. Fun fact, with our Patreon, if you go to the first class tier, which 
when we launch it, you can see everything that is included with all the tiers, but you get episodes by me yeah. once a month. Miranda which we already sounds. recorded. You get Miranda-sodes every month, uh, which, lucky for you, because... If if you aren't the one individual who hates Miranda's voice, cough, Nick's coworker. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. There's nothing I can do about that. (laughs) But if you want just the same amount of salty, but telling the story, I mean, first one comes out in January, so... Yep. So, those things are coming in the new year. Those are the things you can expect almost right away. We will update you as those things come out but uh yeah enjoy the rest of your week thanks for listening keep your speed up please like and follow us on facebook and instagram at hard landings podcast and on twitter at hard landings pod also subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen if you want to see photos and sources for this episode please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. And our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.